Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangers, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, now apparently, um, we're looking at Mark chapter three as was read to us earlier. Apparently, okay, being famous is not all it is cracked up to be. Okay, Utada Hikaru, the Japanese-American singer, said, I can never really enjoy being famous, which I thought was just as well, because I'd never even heard of her. Okay. <laughs> oh, she's never heard of me either, just saying. Okay. Um, someone I had heard of, Robert De Niro, once said, the hardest thing about being famous is that people are always nice to you except, I suspect, in the age of online trolls. 
In fact, I would say that today, I think it would be fair to say, isn't it, that, that two things follow fame, crowds and conflict, crowds and controversy. I mean, whether you're a sports star, uh, whether you're a pop star, whether you're a politician, uh, whether you're a climate activist, if you're famous, by definition, crowds are going to follow you, but so too is controversy. And the same was true of Jesus. Okay, look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Okay, great crowd. There's no question Jesus' popularity is there. Okay, his appeal is across the board, you know, both geographically and socially. Okay, so much so that he has to have a boat ready. Okay, verse 9, lest they crush him. Okay, he's, deeply, he's incredibly popular, but he's also deeply polarizing. Okay, one British politician once said, I'm proud of my enemies. Okay, but think of Jesus. Because in the case of Jesus, when it's his own family, or when it is the great and the good who are opposing him, that should, that should at least make you think, shouldn't it? I mean, that should give you pause to consider, because Jesus is not like your normal celebrity. Now, he's not just asking you to come and watch him play sport. He's not just asking you to listen to his latest uh, piece of music. He's not asking you to use green energy or even to give him your vote. He wants you to give him your life. So should you? Okay, should you give your life to a man who in his day was so deeply polarizing, who was so divisive? Well, to decide that, you've got to ask three questions, haven't you? Who is he? Who is he, and am I for him or against him? And how am I going to decide one way or the other? That's what we're going to look at. First point then, who is he? Now occasionally, um, as I'm sure you do, occasionally I get asked to write a reference. You know, someone's applying for a job, they want to go on a missions trip or go on a course somewhere, and I've got to write and say, well, this is what they're really like. Or I might get asked to support a passport application. You know, and I have to sign the back of the photo and say, yeah, this really is what they look like. And they are of good character, which when they're Australian, okay, that's, that's a bit tricky, isn't it? All right. But the point of a reference is that someone who supposedly can be trusted is vouching for this person. Someone who can be trusted. With Jesus, it's very different, isn't it? Because who repeatedly vouches for him, or at least tells us who he is? Verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Now, we've said this before, but I think we have to say it again. Okay, in the West, you may struggle with the idea of the supernatural and an evil that is personal. If that is you, okay, I want you to take a step back. Okay, I, want you to, I want you to look at the rest of the world because compared to the rest of the world, you know, a sanitized, 
materialistic view of the world and of the universe, that is a minority opinion. And the rest of the world, they do not doubt the reality of evil. They live it daily. What they might doubt is that anyone could doubt the existence of evil. And I mean, you know, like we've prayed this morning, take a look at Ukraine. If you have found yourself saying anything along the lines of, that is so wrong. Yeah, this is wicked. This is evil. People shouldn't do that. Then what I want you to think is, it's not just Ukraine that's being undermined and attacked. It's the it's the postmodern premise that truth and morality and good and you know, right and wrong and good and bad and evil, that they're just social constructs, that they don't really exist. You know, when you feel anger rising up inside you at what you are seeing, it's because you instinctively know that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that there is such a thing as good and bad, that there is such a thing as evil. But secularism, you've said it before, secularism cannot give you an answer for that. But the Bible can. And the Judeo-Christian worldview can. Because it tells you that evil is real, it is personal, and it is deeply destructive. Okay, but when the people whose lives these unclean spirits are destroying, when they come face to face with Jesus, Mark tells us, they fall down before him. It's interesting, isn't it? It's as if the powers of darkness cannot stay standing in the presence of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And those who do stay standing, okay, those who are standing around and are wondering, you know, who is this guy? It's as if the demons pull back the curtain on the unseen world Verse 11 again, and tell us, you are the son of God. Okay, but Jesus silences them. And the question, of course, is, is why? Okay, they're saying exactly the same as God the Father said at Jesus' baptism. They're saying exactly what Peter will say later when he confesses his faith in Christ. But unlike the Father and unlike Peter, when the demons say it, there's no love there, is there? There's no affection for Christ there. Augustine said to one, to God the Father, to, to Peter, to one, Jesus is lovely. To the other, to these unclean spirits, he is terrible. You know, Roosevelt said, I ask you to judge me by the enemies I have made. Well, if that's the case, then the terror of the powers of darkness in the face of Jesus, that's testimony enough, isn't it? Okay, but it's not just the unclean spirits who provide evidence for who he is. Okay, verses 13 and 14. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12. Now, there are some numbers in the Bible that are you know, highly symbolic, aren't there? And 12 is one of them. Okay, that's highly symbolic within uh, Judaism because it's a number of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, but mountains are also symbolic. 
And after delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt, God called those 12 tribes to meet him on a mountainside at Mount Sinai, to be with him, to be his people. Now, here is Jesus, and he is on a mountainside, and he is calling 12 men to be with him. What's he doing? He's not just picking his best mates, is he? He is reforming and restoring God's chosen people, Israel. Okay, I want you to notice what he doesn't do. Because he doesn't make himself one of the 12, does he? He doesn't pick 11 and go, hey, you 11 and me, we make 12. Guys, we are the new 12 tribes. No, he appoints 12 and he is not one of them. So... Whose position is he putting himself in up on that mountain as he calls these 12 men to him? He's putting himself in God's position. He's the one who calls Israel to himself. He's the one who makes his new people. Okay, but notice what else he does. Because during his dispute with the scribes, he says, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Now, in Jesus' day, if you were a rabbi and you wanted to bolster and strengthen your argument, what you'd do is you'd appeal to the teaching of your predecessors. You know, well, as Rabbi Shammai said. And, of course, in the Old Testament, the prophets would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus does neither of those. He says, truly, I say to you. He's his own authority. And that word truly is the word amen. Amen, I say to you. And before Jesus, uh, before Jesus' time, it was only ever used at the end of a sentence. There'd be some truth, and then it says amen. That's right, agreed, confirmed. The only time it is not used in that sense is in Isaiah 65, verse 16, where God is called the God of truth, literally, the God of Amen. And here is Jesus saying, Amen, at the beginning of a sentence, first time it's done, Amen, I say to you, I'm the standard, I'm the authority, it's my word that's the truth. Think about that. Excuse me, think about that. Because there are plenty of other religious leaders who have made the claim to be mouthpieces for God. There are plenty of other religious leaders who have claimed to be great prophets for God. Jesus doesn't make that claim. He never makes that claim. He's in a different league. He doesn't claim to be God's spokesman. He claims to be God. The God of the Amen. Now, how are you supposed to respond to a man like that? Because he's a man. Second point then, are you for him or against him? Okay, and here in this passage, we get two very different responses to him. Okay, firstly, there are the disciples. Now, in medicine, I'm sure this is, maybe this comes from elsewhere as well, but in medicine, we used to talk about see one, do one, teach one. If you've got a junior doctor, they need to learn a practical procedure like sticking in a a chest drain. Well, they get to watch you do one, and then they do the next one whilst you watch them, and then they 
teach it to somebody else. See one, do one, teach one. Okay, it's very reassuring, isn't it, to know that your doctor, when he does it on you, has only ever done it once, okay? Or just watch someone do it. <clears throat> you observe, you do, you teach. Okay, or think of Swiss apprenticeships. You know, when we first moved to uh, Switzerland, we thought, what a terrible idea. Okay, you only let 30% of secondary school people go to university and all the rest get shunted off into apprenticeships? That's a terrible idea. Over time, what you realize, it's the opposite. Actually, it's an extremely good idea because young people get trained and they get trained for jobs that exist and they get trained for jobs that are needed unlike a degree in underwater basket weaving. Okay, and when Jesus calls the 12, this is what he's calling them to, isn't it? It's what he calls all of us to, to apprenticeship, to learn from and be trained by him. But how does it begin? It begins with him calling and them responding. Verse 13, he called to him those whom he desired and they came. Now, maybe you're um, here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, but you're investigating the Christian faith. Okay, you're just beginning to think this stuff through. You're beginning to think, okay, you know, should, should this be something that I am interested in? Okay, well, what, these passage, what this passage and what other passages in the Bible tell us is that even that faintest interest... Even that, that stirring of interest in, in your thinking or in your heart, on your part, is the beginning, it's, it's you beginning to hear him calling you. And that voice may seem miles away, okay, it may seem very faint, but he's calling you. And for those of us who are Christians, we, you know, we can start off thinking hey, that I became a Christian out of my own free choice. And we did. But what you discover is that there was this school teacher who had been praying for you for years. Or there was that book that you just happened to pick up that made you think. Or there was that conversation with that friend you had that made you start to reflect. And what you do is now, you can now look back and you realize, did I decide to follow Jesus? Sure I did. But now I see all of these ways in which he was calling me before ever I came. Okay, and when he calls you, he calls you for a purpose, verse 14. And he appointed 12 whom he, named, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. So at the very heart of Christianity, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is not what's at the heart of all the other religions, a list of requirements that you've got to fulfill. At the heart of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian, is a relationship with Jesus. It's to be with him. It is to sit at his feet and learn from him and be shaped by him. And everything else flows out of that. And if you look, lots of other things do flow out of that. Because you cannot spend time with Jesus and it not profoundly influence the way you see and do life. 
verses 14 and 15 again. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay, so firstly, he calls them apostles, literally, those sent as a representative. And as eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, these guys are in a league of their own. Okay, there's no one else who is an apostle like these guys are apostles. And yet, there is a sense in which we are, you know, every Christian is sent into the world by Jesus to be his representative. You know, when you leave here this morning, when you go into your office tomorrow morning, or when you go onto campus, you are being sent as his representative out there in the world. And they and you and I are sent with a message. If you, if you are religiously inclined, it's easy enough to find a message, isn't it? Because, you know, it could be your own views as to what God is like. You know, well, I think that God is like this. I think God is like a, a pink fairy. Or it could, be that, it could be your take on politics. It could be your take on morality. But look, these guys didn't get to create their own message. They were sent to proclaim the message, the good news of Jesus. It's what we're all called to do. None of us get to create our own message. It's what we're all called to do. That doesn't mean necessarily preaching, you know, standing up the front, but it does mean all of us letting all that Jesus has done for us shape all of our interactions with others, and not just with words. Okay, because Jesus gives them authority to cast out demons, to push back the darkness. And Paul says to us in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's what you're called to do. It's what I'm called to do. We are called to push back the darkness and overcome evil with good. Now, you might think, well, do you know what? I'm not sure I'm the proclaiming or the overcoming darkness kind of person. Okay, sure, I don't think any of us would say that we were. Okay, look at these 12, though. Because you've got a tax collector, like Matthew, collaborator with the Roman occupying forces, and you've got a zealot, like Simon, who murdered collaborators. And in between, you've got a fisherman, like Peter, or Simon, who Jesus calls Peter rock, but who to start with was anything but a rock. And you've got James and John, who because of their explosive personalities, Jesus called sons of thunder. What qualification do these guys have to be proclaimers and overcomers? The only qualification they have is that Jesus called them and they came, that he chose them and they responded. And he calls us and every one of us can come. Okay, if they were for Jesus, not everyone responded so positively, did they? Okay, people are being healed. The powers of darkness are being expelled. And verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, 
if you're not yet a Christian, okay, you might hear some of this stuff about Jesus claiming to be God and putting himself on this exalted level. And you think, well, okay, that's a bit far. You know, I don't, I don't agree with that necessarily. But I still think, you know, I still respect Jesus. I still think he's a, you know, he's a pretty good, great even spiritual teacher. What his family tell you is that no one in their right mind would make the kind of claims about himself that Jesus does. You'd have to be mad to do that. You know, C.S. Lewis put it, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, Lewis says. And of course, one reason why Jesus's family may have moved against him is that in an honor-shame culture, Jesus's claims and his conflicts, they would have reflected badly on them, wouldn't they? Hey, this does not look good for us, but not just for them. Because if you think about it, it can be one of the reasons why you might be where, if you're not yet a Christian, it might be one of the reasons why you are weighing up whether to become a Christian or not. It may be one of the reasons, if you are a Christian, as to whether that you are weighing up whether to come out as a Christian in your friendship circle or at work. How will this reflect on me? What will others think of me if I say this? Okay, if his family think he is mad, the religious scribes think he's bad. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now notice, there's no debate that Jesus is doing what he's doing, is there? Nobody's debating that Jesus is healing people. Nobody is debating that Jesus is casting out unclean spirits. The only debate is, how is he doing it? Where is he getting his power from? Satan the scribes say. And Jesus replies, verses 23 to 25, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house, that house will not be able to stand. You know, fractured kingdoms and fighting families, they just don't last, do they? Infighting always ends in defeat. As the old adage goes, to divide is to conquer. And Jesus says Satan is not so stupid as to bring about his own downfall. Now, if you have ever spoken to anyone who is seriously mentally unwell, one of the telltale signs is their lack of lucidity, isn't it? You know, you know their, their thoughts and their words, they're just all jumbled. You know, their argument just doesn't flow. Their, the sentences just don't connect. And they're saying Jesus is mad. But you never get that with Jesus, do you? What you get is the opposite. 
And in a couple of sentences, he has convincingly and eloquently destroyed the argument that he's bad. But in doing so, he has also answered any concerns that he's mad, because a madman just doesn't speak like this. Okay, so if he's neither mad nor bad, who is he? Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And the strong man is Satan, and his house is his power to hold people captive. And Jesus has come as the one who binds a strong man and sets his captives free. But think about it. If Satan is the strong man, Who's stronger than Satan? Who is stronger than the most powerful created being? If there is no created being stronger than him, who is stronger? The creator. So you for him or against him? You for this man who says these things about himself, or you against him? You know, if you're not yet a Christian, why come to him rather than turn away from him? And if you are a Christian, why keep following and trusting him when the world increasingly says that you're mad or bad to do so? Last point then, how to decide. Okay, I want to give you four reasons from the passage. There are multiple other reasons. I want to give you four that I can see here. Firstly, because in Jesus you have a new name, which I know sounds kind of weird, But in the Old Testament, God would change people's names as a sign of the change that he is bringing about in their lives. And Abram becomes Abraham, and Sarai becomes Sarah, and Jacob becomes Israel. And when Mark lists the 12 disciples, Simon tops it, verse 16. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, rock, because on this unreliable man and on his confession of faith in who Jesus is Jesus will build his church why and how because Jesus has the power to change the life of a man like Peter and the direction of his life I don't know maybe you have been told that you will amount to nothing maybe you even believe that about yourself Maybe you look at your track record and you believe it. Jesus says, hey, come to me. I am the one with the power to make all things new. I'm the the one with the power to give you a new name, to give you a hope and a future. So come to me. Secondly, come to him because in him there is forgiveness. Look at verse 28. Where Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And maybe there is something in your past that you look back on and you think, why did I do that? Why did I ever do that? And your guilt is like a shadow hanging over you. Well, Jesus says to you this morning, hey, come to me. There is nothing outside of the range of my forgiveness. Let me lift that guilt off of you. 
But what, you, you might say, well, what if I've committed the unforgivable sin? Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, and you're right. There is a sin that is unforgivable. It's to constantly refuse to come to Christ for forgiveness. It is to spend your life refusing Christ's offer to you. And if you refuse him, where else can you go for forgiveness? It's a fatal error that these scribes are in danger of making, isn't it? Verse 30, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. But if you are worried that this might be you, if you're worried that you have committed this sin, okay, I can tell you, you haven't. Because your worry tells you, you still want forgiveness. So come and receive it. Come to Christ and be forgiven. Because he says, I turn no one away who comes to me. Okay, thirdly, come to him because in him you become family. Verses 32 to 35. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. It's deeply ironic, isn't it? Because normally, a family is on the inside and the crowd is on the outside. Here, the, the crowd is inside and the family is outside. Because you can be Jesus' flesh and blood family and that means nothing for whether or not you are actually trusting him. You can be brought up in a Christian home. You can be proud of the country that you are from. You can hold impeccable conservative or liberal political views and you can still be on the outside. What matters is your heart relationship with Jesus, that you do the will of God, which is, as we've already seen in Mark, is to repent to believe and to follow Jesus. And when that is true of you, Jesus looks at you and says, your family, you're my family. As Hebrews says, he is not ashamed to be called your brother. Just think of that. Jesus looks down on you this morning and says, I am not ashamed of you. So come to him. And let him lift any sense of shame you have off of you. And don't be ashamed of him in your friendship circle or at work. Okay, fourthly, come to him because he was betrayed for you. Interesting, every list of the 12 apostles begins with Simon Peter and it ends with Judas Iscariot, verse 19. And Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And it is that fact that the Son of God, the one who restores the people of God, the God of the Amen, the one with the power to bind the strong man and to free the captives, it is the fact that he was betrayed for you and became weak for you that should cause you to come to him. Think about it. How does Jesus break the power of Satan over us? 
by himself being broken at the cross and then rising in triumph? How does he secure the forgiveness of our sin and pay the infinite weight of our debt by becoming the infinitely perfect sacrifice for our sin? How can you and I be welcomed into the family of God and have God the Father call us his own? Because at the cross, Jesus was forsaken and he was rejected by friends and family and leaders and ultimately his heavenly father. He was rejected that you can be accepted. The writer of Hebrews says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Consider Christ. Because if he loves you enough to endure opposition and betrayal and the horror of the cross for you, he is not going to let you go in the middle of your trial or the opposition that you face. So don't lose heart. Don't turn away from Christ. Instead, instead, turn to him. Come to him and trust him. Let's pray.